Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome to a special edition of Blockhead. This is a different episode this time around. We won't be talking about Charles Schultz. We won't be talking about Peanuts. We're taking a little detour this time to another issue I think is very pertinent at the moment, and that's the demise or so-called demise of Mad Magazine, which has been a home for cartoonists almost as long as Peanuts has been running in newspapers, uh, since about 1952 when Harvey Kurtzman uh, originated Mad, discovered Mad, discovered Mad, uh, out there in the wild somewhere. (laughs) So here we are. Uh, All the news lately has been about the end of Mad, which is a 67-year institution, that's for sure. And a lot of us grew up with it. A lot of us are sad to hear the news. So there's a lot of thought about it. And I think for cartoonists in particular, it's a very pertinent issue. So I decided, because I also have a connection to a, a colleague and friend by the name of Ryan Flanders, who for 17 years was design director at Mad Magazine, he has intimate knowledge of the inner workings of MAD over the last 17 years, 19 years really, and I wanted to talk to him about his insights and his feelings regarding this transition period for this venerable cartooning institution. And I think as cartoonists, again, it's something that we're all concerned with, uh, and as readers too, right? You know, because uh, we all start out as readers, and uh, we grew up with MAD, and I grew up with MAD. And it's a big part of my cartooning DNA, if you will, and I'm sure it is for, for many cartoonists, not only in my generation, but of many generations that have followed uh, over the course of the last nearly 70 years. So there's a lot to talk about, and because of that, we've split it up into two episodes. Uh, It's a rather long interview or discussion between Ryan and myself. It covers a lot of territory, past and present, and a lot of issues that are pertinent to uh, those of us who are working in the field yet today. So I'm going to put up the second part as soon as possible. It'll probably be, if it's not, immediately following today it'll probably be tomorrow so both episodes will be up there for you to listen to but I broke it up because it is very very long and you'll need a break and so uh, I I don't want to tax your ears too much so there you go it'll be up in two episodes I hope you're going to uh, my Instagram account at Grogan Jeff at Instagram uh, to follow my new work, Spiking the Lens, which is a comic strip about actresses, actors, authors, and a laundromat in Hollywood. It's about making movies and making TV shows and the life of people who struggle to do so. Uh, please follow it. Uh, check out the website, spikingthelens.com. You can get a taste of it there. It's really just started. It's really brand new, so you can you can catch up with it pretty quickly. I think you'll enjoy it. It'll do me good mentally and emotionally if you'll check it out, too. I really appreciate it. So uh, thanks again. Look out for part two. Part two will be up ASAP, okay? So uh, uh, without further ado, Ryan Flanders, myself, in discussion about Mad Magazine. I, I'm a... 
I don't know. I'm I'm honest enough to say that I was a crack trader despite all of my connections. Oh yeah. Well, my uh, a, a secret shame is that I had a letter published in Cracked. Oh no. See, this this, be, this, this is going to be, be on the show. This I'm from this moment. <laughs> I put this on the show. You had a letter in Cracked magazine. Yeah, I uh, I read both Cracked and Mad, and okay. I don't think I really. I don't, I don't know. I think I was too young enough to make a real differentiation about. Yeah. They you know, looked a lot alike. Better. I yeah. certainly, uh, you know, it's all so skewed now because I've had 19 years of professional connection with Matt, yeah. but I certainly don't remember the names of the majority of the people who worked on crack the way I have, you know, somewhere in the back of my head, a list of almost everyone somehow involved with Matt somehow deep down, you know, there are a lot of people. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I did love Severin, and I was reading Cracked in the mid-80s when, I was reading Mad and Cracked in the mid-80s when it was, like, Klaus was doing his his ugly family stuff in Cracked, uh-huh. and they had uh, Bill Ray and Bob Fingerman doing work there, so. Good people. Yeah, so I was, I you know, I, I was into it. So I wrote them a letter. I was, mm-hmm. I, I, I was reading anything that had drawings in it that was uh you know that was was in between two glossy covers and staples so i was a big marvel zombie and i love the x-men and i wanted them to do an x-men parody and do comics parodies and things like that i think i wrote pretty much the exact same letter probably both the mad and crack verbatim and crack published it but what i remember i remember even as a kid they had edited it to make it sound cooler Oh, they did. You know, I think I wrote something like, "Dear Cracked, I really love your magazine," and they edited that to, "I really dig your mag." (laughs) And I remember that thinking, "I would, I would never speak that way." That sounds like the guys who edited it Marvel in in the day. I think Cracked was a Marvel magazine, right? So uh, it it sounds crazy. Yeah, it sounds a little like you know, it's got that that neo hip seventies sound that you know the editors at Marvel, like Marv Wolfman and Len Wein and and Roy Thomas used sort of like a faux Stan Lee sounding uh, sound. So that's kind of it's that's great. So what what else? Possibly, I don't know if the crack. What's it? Because Marvel had Crazy Magazine. Oh, is that what it was? Okay, let me check that. You know, I'm, was- I'm I'll admit it was before my time. I never so- touched an issue of Crazy. And I, I do know a lot of people who worked on Crazy were um, editors at Marvel's. Uh, Mike Carlin, specifically, who I knew uh, at DC, kind of in passing. He was, um, when, when, when I worked at MAD, MAD being part of DC, we had more kind of interaction with certain departments than others or just for whatever reason our office would be stuck in a corner next to another office that was stuck in a corner so we'd just have more friends in certain departments but mike carlin was kind of just like a friend of mad somebody we'd see around and i remember hearing that he was you know he had been heavily involved in crazy and marvel is actually doing a crazy one shot i I don't mean to give them a, a shameless plug but (laughs) <laughs> this is news that in, has come out uh, a little bit more prominently in the last week or two since the news of Mad changing format has come out that Marvel is doing a one-off crazy. 
Um, it, it, the time is right, I suppose, to fill that gap, right? Yeah. And, uh, they're, they're testing the water probably to see if it flies. Heavy Metal is doing a kind of, I have I don't know much about it, but they're doing, a, I believe it's also a one-shot publication called Softwood. Really? Is a parody magazine. I don't know if they're doing. I don't know. I don't know what's what it will be like at all. I don't know if it's going to be a parody of its of heavy metal itself, kind mm-hmm. of self mockery, um, or if they are just going for a big bold kind of satire magazine. I have no clue. Man, more power to them. I, I suppose you know. It's great to see that uh, there's so many publishers willing to sort of jump into the fray. And there's an iron. There's certainly an irony in it. Yeah, there sure is. I mean, you know, spe- especially with crazy. You know, uh, I'm sorry, I mixed that up. I always thought Cracked was a Marvel magazine, but I just looked it up and saw Brodsky, who was a you know production manager at Marvel for so many years. He was like the publisher, or, uh, the printer, or the chief editor. I'm not sure, but he had a lot to do with it. Anyway, of Cracked. Of Cracked, yeah. So okay, so there probably, is that connection. There is a connection there, but it's kind of interesting uh that you had that letter published usually those kind of letters they turned them around on the writer and tried to make them seem really kind of uh you know they had some kind of snarky reply the invention of snark was i think in mad and and those um mag it's many imitators that was something we did too uh at at mad throughout my time there i was there between 2000 2017 uh, I was uh, officially in the art department, but as time went on with a small staff, I was more and more involved with all aspects of the magazine and the bigger brand, which is a tough word to use when talking about a cultural icon at Mad, which yeah. like like Mad, which you know has made uh, made hay of mocking the idea of branding. But it, yeah. I mean, it is. It's what it becomes, right? So. There were bigger aspects, so I, I was just doing all sorts of things. So though I was not uh, a writer uh, per se, I might come up with ideas or edit certain things, but I wasn't a writer. So the letters were answered in house by um, a couple editors. The majority of my time there was Dave Croato, who mm-hmm. was the senior editor, and uh, and Jacob and Amy Voziolis was an editor, and Jacob Lambert. So a mixture of the three of them, and it would kind of be, you know, we're, they were trying to be playful with the reader Uh more often than not we were trying to always turn it back on us you know we were we were the real idiots but at the same time if you're reading mad you're 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 proclaiming allegiance with this big gang of idiots and so you know what does that say you about must be an idiot too yeah, yeah. <laughs> like groucho marx says i'd never want to join a club that would have me as a member right, right. You know, right. and that's kind of the uh attitude of of mad magazine uh you must be a real idiot if you're following us and uh, you know i guess but thinking about it you know i mean that whole we talk about the cultural influence of mad and Mad Magazine, when you think about it, really invented that kind of repartee with its reader and also with an audience. And and it is kind of mimicked in a lot of, the, I mean, it's sort of, you know, suffused the culture we live in now uh, so that it's part of the everyday language in a way, that kind of mockery of uh, people you might otherwise, you know, cherish, you know, <laughs> somebody who's spending money on your magazine to, to sort of mock them is kind of, you know, uh, what is it, almost kind of sadistic or something. But um, 
you know, it's kind of, it, it it's not productive anyway, but it, it's kind of interesting that 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 sort of has suffused the culture in a lot of ways. We see it play out and on uh, in all kinds of things. Trolls really probably, you know, are offspring of Mad in some way or another. Oh, I hope not, but I guess that might be the case. Yeah. Well, Mad was never that nasty, you know. I mean, they weren't nasty for nasty's sake. They were nasty for for fun, you know. Right. That's true. And Mad, well, you're right. And Mad um, had very like a certain i don't want to say specific rules but we had policies and you know uh, bill gaines would say that mad doesn't have an agenda but there were certain things that you know we don't have an agenda we go after everyone but at the same time uh mad had certain policies about uh what we would call victim humor um mm-hmm. where it's it's i've been seeing a lot of the uh pseudo memorials from mad this past week, talk mad talking about about talking about mad punching up, and that was very much the case. We would the the, the kind of the, the the moral compass in the magazine was to let people know that the people in power have real agendas and they have the ability to enact them, and they're all lying to you. And that could be anyone from politicians to Madison Avenue when that was. When advertising, I mean, still advertising is doing the same thing, but when it was especially, I think, corrupt, mm-hmm. uh, let's talk about like cigarette, the cigarette era. Sure, uh, the, the madman era. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah. exactly, the madman era. That was something we would try to maintain as a central focus about, and this, I mean, religious figures, whatever it might be, we never mocked people for their religious beliefs, though we would talk about religion at a broader scale. And we would talk about the leaders of the religion taking advantage of the people that followed them. Sure. Well, you know, I mean, that that agenda, that idea, I love that idea of punching up rather than punching down. Because, you know, I mean, politically, you can see there's a, there's a whole system in and, and you know, a whole uh, ideology that's devoted to the idea of punching down, you know, of punching the people who are ju- on the rung of, of success just below you. It's their fault, not your own fault or not the fault of the your leaders. Uh, heaven forbid it's the fault of those people in power. No, it's the fault of these other people. And and that's an agenda that that is you know, unfortunately very successful. But the thing, as you say, uh, uh, about MAD is that throughout its history, from the very beginning, it was always about skewering uh, those people who really had the, the, you know, the authority, who had the power. And it started all the way back in in 52 when Harvey Kurtzman started the magazine, uh, you know, right from the beginning. It was always after. And, and it, what, I think what's really interesting, too, is if you go back to the beginnings of the magazine, there, there was really nothing like it around at that time and when you watch media from the period of time you know most of the media is really reverential towards authority figures uh particularly like you know the 30s the 40s um you don't find satire at least in the in the mass media you know the films and that we have left to us that we can watch and things like that you don't really you know find people making fun of the president and you know in uh, or or elected leaders so much you find this kind of reverential I- idea about what you know the united states is what the, the office of the presidency is what the office you know offices of those in congress are and and religious figures and all of that um you know it wasn't until mad came along in the early fifties that you, you had this outlet for this kind of, um, this satire that was, it was 
a period that was ripe for it. You know, it was it was really ready for uh, Mad Magazine to appear because, you know, it kind of had reached this moment where, hey, wait a minute, you know, uh, Joseph McCarthy and, and the Red Scare and all of that. There's something going on here that's not really cool, you know, and um, and Kurtzman made it his agenda, as did Gaines and, and Al Feldstein afterwards, uh, to, to go after those people and um, take the air out of their balloon, so to speak, which they did, obviously, so successfully. Right. And it's still that was always something we continued to try to do uh, as the decades went on. And I still I still have to I wonder now where that where a kid, let's say a typical 12 year old uh, that might be the target mad audience in yeah. scenario where they're going to first encounter that at this point. I certainly know there were still plenty of kids finding it in mad. Although yeah. there has been a lot of discussion about it appearing in uh, that type of uh, outlook and approach and kind of voice appearing in the, the wider culture and in places that are obvious, like The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. Sure. I live. The Simpsons, I think, is a, a kind of good space, uh, like a good indication of where a kid could have that. I mean, I have a, an eight year old son mm-hmm. and he's just starting to become aware of The Simpsons and I can see it already changing the way he's thinking <laughs> in, a, in a way. I mean, I like it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. He, he's, he's, bec- I, <laughs> so the Simpsons came out when I was already alive and a teenager and the Simpsons neighbor, uh, of course is famously Ned Flanders. So I already was established as Ryan Flanders. I, I lived a life and it was fine. So it kind of became like a side thing. Although over the years that became more of a nickname and thing and something people would call me and, uh, <laughs> and most people would think that that is not my real name anyhow. So my little boy now is kind of living this opposite where now he is entering the world where Flanders is something else. And now he has to kind of adapt. So that's a side of the point. But <laughs> sorry, you can edit that part. No, man, that's great. So. So uh, I still like there, there's something about. Oh, so there's still that 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 point for a child where their eyes open differently and because the whole world was their parents and, and their friends and school and teachers and that kind of small pocket of comfort and authority around them. And I know that the world is more cynical and there are more opportunities to be exposed to things, but even, even the, the television that is kind of catering to that age group and and the YouTube stars that are catering to that age group, they're still kind of, I think they're aware of their audience. So there is, there's a softness to the the cynical bite. There's still some innocence there. Mm, Okay. And um, I just don't know. I'm curious to see where, I mean, I have a very specific uh, situation where I have this, this kid who's, who's, uh, you know, about to enter that world, I guess. Yeah. become more aware of the world around him in a different way. And it's just that, you know, for, for, even for me, mad was the thing I was, I found mad in 1986. I don't know what else as a 12 year old or 11 year old, I would have been exposed to at that time that would have changed my worldview. So I was not watching Saturday Night Live yet. I was a little on the young side. Um, You know, I was, I would go to the grocery store and I'd see mad and cracked and national lampoon. And I'd flip through those, and I didn't think I was allowed to buy any of them. Uh, my mom came around the corner one day, 
and I had mad in my hands and I threw it down. Submersive uh, <laughs> material. Yeah, she said, "What were you looking at? What are you looking at?" Uh, thankfully, it wasn't National Lampoon. And yeah. she said, "Oh, mad, that's fine. You can get that." Which was even kind of a a weird moment because I, I I wanted it badly, but you know, a lot of people say that mad is a part of what mad makes mad appealing is your parents don't want you to read it. But yeah, yeah. I think she still didn't know it was in there. There was plenty in there she would not approve of. What's cool about Mad, what's unique about Mad is that it's all right there in one package for you. And there's a lot in there telling you about a lot of different things. I, I'm very curious about uh, now that Mad is changing format, at least for now, you know, what, what would be comparable, if anything? Oh, I don't know. You know, for, for so many of us, it was a rite of passage. You know, I grew up in the 60s and, uh, and I was 12 years old in 72. You know, that's right around the time it hit its peak, right? And um, in terms of circulation. And um, so it was at its most popular then. And it was really a rite of passage. I remember uh, in my own experience, um, in the 60s, uh, I lived in this little neighborhood where we would share comics and we'd share books. And I've talked about that a little bit about Peanuts paperbacks, but there were mad paperbacks floating around. And Mad Magazine. And I remember sitting on my friend's front porch and, and my two, there were two brothers and me and, and JJ that was the guy who was a year older than me. And I remember JJ had bought Mad Magazine, you know, it was 35 cents. I think it was 35 cents then, uh, which was a lot of money to us, you know, 35 cents. It's like, where do you get 35 cents from? Anyway, he bought this magazine. So we're all sitting there in a little circle, you know, and I must've been, I think probably eight and we're like pouring over this magazine and we couldn't believe it. You know, I mean, the thing we couldn't, we gravitated to first was the fold in, which was always, you know, magic, you know, the fold in part of it. But, you know, from that moment on, you're kind of initiated into this world where, um, you know, okay, Santa Claus isn't really real, you know, and all of those things that you've heard before. Well, some of them are fibs. Some of them aren't quite true. And then, you know, you clue into some of the movie parodies and then you're reading. I remember, you know, reading uh, Mad Magazine again when I was eight, and nine years old, uh, reading Dave Berg. Right. And I love the Don Martin stuff. I love the spy versus spy stuff because it was usually less verbal. And so when you're that that age, you don't have to catch up with that many words. But Dave Berg stuff is like this very cynical um, you know, middle-aged guy talking about suburban problems and, and, you know, the problems of, of, uh, living a life in, you know, mid 20th century America. I mean, how could you possibly understand that, you know, but it somehow or another, it appealed to kids and to us and, and, uh, continue to do so, you know, through early, through early adolescence, but it really did open up a door, like a secret door. Which was a door, I think, that when when you talk about that, um, it was a door that prior to the comics code, you know, I mean, Mad came out of this period, right, this tumultuous period in the 50s where the comics code was instituted, a self-imposed, you know, organization, which sort of put the end of, you know, Mad's precursors, the EC line of horror comics, right? All of those were put out of business, more or less, by the comics code authority, which had this censorship kind of thing. And, um, what was born out of that was mad magazine, which eventually, you know, became a magazine in part because of that. 
anyway, prior to Mad, you know, that secret doorway was through these horror magazines. And I guess in that that's one way in which Bill Gaines kept his hand in, you know, uh, offering kids this alternative universe where, you know, your parents are no longer omnipotent, you know, all powerful and um, flawless, you know, and the world figures, the authority figures are not all as powerful as you think they are. They're human beings and sometimes they're pretty funny. And all of that is like a world that you enter into, uh, that we entered into when I was a kid initially through mad. And of course, mad led to all kinds of other things. It led to, uh, for me, uh, it led to first national lampoon, uh, and national lampoon was like the, the next step. Right. And then, um, of course, Monty Python and Monty Python and Saturday night live and, uh, mostly Monty Python for me, but, um, you know, and, and then you go back and you look and see some of the things that were happening at the same time as Mad. And I think of Rocky and Bullwinkle, which is, you know, couldn't have been without Mad Magazine. It's like, uh, and once you've been clued into what Mad clues you into, you go back and look at Rocky and Bullwinkle and you can see all kinds of stuff inside of that that was mocking and and uh, satirical as well. And uh, so, yeah, Mad was, a for me and for you, it was a big entryway into this idea that, you know, powerful figures are not all powerful. They can be challenged. They can be flawed. They can be funny. And that one of the ways in which you can sort of um, take them down a peg and elevate yourself is through humor. And so, you know, without mad, um, I don't know what the doorway is for kids. I suppose, you know, a lot of ways you're, you're right. You know, you point to things like the Simpsons and, and certainly that's, that's a big one, um, for kids, but I, I'm not sure what else is out there that's comparable. But again, you know, I'm like 40 years removed from that or 50 years removed from that. So, well, you know, let's uh, talk. I, I'm, 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 I'm thinking about, I'm feeling naive even in what I said before, because, uh, you know, as, as I was coming of age. Um, there weren't a lot of other things, but uh, that that had that same effect or in there. But yeah, of course, the influence was there, and it wasn't the only. You know, when it first came out, as you said, it was kind of the only thing, the originator of that viewpoint, and uh, and and giving you this peek into, like, kind of like a it was, it was like a peek up and into the adult world. You said that your parent, like, that all these people. It's something I'm. I still have a hard time adjusting to in my 40s that everyone's just a person and they're flawed and regardless of what type of power they have in the world or over you or influence or anything they're still just a person with their own concerns and worries and every time you think you said the wrong thing to someone and second guess your interaction uh unless there's some sort of sociopath there's a good chance that they also have empathy for that moment and are trying to figure out what went right and what went wrong i mean that, those type of things happen i think you know kids think adults have all the answers mad started to say maybe they don't and yeah. i i guess that is you know that is coming from lots of different places i i know that a popular i it, it's a little frustrating being someone who loved mad so much as a kid mm -hmm. admittedly i stopped reading it around the time that many people do um right. and i didn't think about it too much until i got the job uh mm -hmm. but i certainly have a strong bias towards it and again, I, I'll, I'll, I can talk about this a little more after, but I like the idea that it's all one special, unique thing. But its influence is felt in so many different ways. And so many, I, I'm seeing more and more uh, material out there, content, as they say, 
that would be that we would call a mad premise or a variation yeah. on something mad literally did. You can say that mad spawned the 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 feeling behind the Simpsons, the the, the mentality that led to the Simpsons. But yeah. I know that a popular YouTube channel, there are a couple like this, but one of them is uh, how it how it should have ended. Uh huh. This is there is um some some animation that's I would say probably let's I would with no offense to anybody involved a little bit more on the amateur side i think it's a little rougher by kind mm -hmm. of design mm -hmm. and they're basically these are parodies of i think entirely movies maybe there's some tv shows or video games mixed in but they're movies uh -huh. and it's beyond like so what we'll do is kind of show you as as in the title how a movie in their opinion should have ended but to get to that point they go through the majority of the movie so it's structured almost entirely like a mad movie parody, which is not as narrative and and direct as a traditional comic book. It's more scenes in a, yeah. in a movie kind of in order that yeah. are prominent scenes or worth mocking or, or or play to the point of the joke being made. And so I've seen some of these and I mean, it is almost exactly like a mad parody, of course, with an. A slightly more, I mean, a much more modern voice and a different viewpoint and all these type of things. But the structure is almost the same. I mean, it's, it's the type of thing like an ideal scenario that would be a mad product. Mad would be doing those videos. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's sort of, that's what I'm saying. It's sort of everywhere, uh, little pieces of it, but it, they're pieces, they're piecemeal. And and it was actually a, an editor on staff, John Bresman, who I think I heard vocalize this the first time when people would say you know why is mad still going why is mad viable or why do you consider it viable why is it worth uh why is it worth anything mm -hmm. and though it it's had its its uh you know imitators mm -hmm. um, mad is still uh, i mean up until up until now it's such a unique product proposition you know pr project all those pra words where it's just it is something you can get by or have delivered to you and it is page after page of great art mm -hmm. intertwined with great writing and jokes and covering a wide range of topics and it's one complete thing i mean there's there's really nothing else like it uh as far as the and also the like the variety of art uh artwork the the mix i mean now i'm talking present day the mix of legends with newer upstart mm -hmm. cartoonists i mean even you know sergio wasn't in every issue sergio aragones i mean there was a point where sergio joined mad there was a point where don martin joined mad yeah yeah um, you know there were sir the, the and, and that's kind of an ongoing thing where usual gang members came and went yeah um, and then more people would join as somebody retired or left the magazine or or passed away and so uh i've always found that like a certain aspect sorry a slight tangent here is that you know we always said that mad in this in the in in the offices we had this thought that for everyone mad was best when they were 12 yeah when they first encountered it yeah. so as a result, the, the artists and writers you might have focused on were the most prominent, like those that were most prominent to you immediately. 
Med had super specials and paperbacks and all these other public publications outside of the regular magazine. So you're always able to be exposed to Don Martin or, um, you know, a Norman Mingo cover. People are no longer the magazines and I'm talking eighties and nineties. Sure. Uh, so you could still find those people, but I have friends slightly younger than me, or I've encountered people who they started reading Mad in the nineties. So for them, like, you know, they like the classic usual gang members, but for them, it's Sam Viviano, Tom Bunk, Rick Talca, the people that jo- John Caldwell, the people that joined Mad in the 80s and then really were filling a lot of its pages throughout the 90s. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, I always I always get a kick out of that, that it really does shift. So and that's sort of. And so, so, right. So as we went on, you know, we still were using as many people as we could from the classic days, the, the heyday, and that would be you know, Sergio, Jaffe, uh, Angelo Torres was working for us a while. Some of the guys started to retire. Mort Drucker was still working for us. But that's what I'm saying is that there would be, you know, these legends mixed in with these new, new, either kind of mid-career, like as far as mad mad um freelancers go or new people so it was just like this wonderful mix of of art of all different styles and uh all different kind of attitudes and approaches and you know as coming from somebody like yourself who's interested in cartooning and the art side of things i mean that's it's just i i always found it very exciting uh, well yeah as reader and as a staff member that that, that is this one product that that has all of that together and then of course the writing from a bunch of different types of of writers as well well you know uh i mean there was kind of mad became uh, you know and it sounds kind of stuffy to say it but it became an institution and as you said an an institution with a kind of moral uh, agenda of a kind you know always punching up and that and um and an approach to things that, you know, an established kind of approach, I don't want to call it a formula, but there was a template, you know, there was a template that was, that was established. Uh, really, it wasn't Kurtzman who established the template. It was really Al Feldstein who right. established the template um, back in the mid fifties. And uh, Feldstein brought on Mort Drucker and he brought on Don Martin and, and Dave Berg and Sergio and Al Jaffe. All those people came on with Feldstein, I think. And and when that mad became the magazine and particularly in the early 60s, I think it sort of solidified its template and its its point of view. And it became an institution wherein once you were admitted to it, uh, it was you were admitted to it really by by value or mark of your attitude, you know, whether it was your attitude in comics and in art or in writing. It was this kind of. Uh, willingness and enthusiasm for, you know, uh, going after other institutions, uh, you know, whether they're political institutions or religious institutions or or popular culture, you know, uh, that willingness and desire to kind of go after those things that everybody, you know, to mock all those things that everybody else tends to sit back and, and revere or become deferential to mad was not ever going to be deferential. And so that was kind of set in stone in a way. And so the door was open to the older folks, the traditional folks who were working there and then, and then, you know, welcoming new people of like mind. And, um, 
And I think in that way it succeeded and, you know, succeeded to reach, you know, 12 year olds, one generation after another. And, and, and it did so, you know, throughout its entire run, which was, you know, how many years is it now? We're talking about 52 to, you know, I can't even count that high. And, so uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's 67, right? 67 years. So, and then when, uh, when it left New York, it was 65. Which it's the oldest twelve-year-old. It's retirement age, so it's you know time for it to. to yeah, go. right. <laughs> they didn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, it was. It took a couple more years, but nobody really retires at sixty-five anymore. No, nobody does. And, and, you know, and 65 is the new 45. So anyway, you know, as, as one approaching 60, let me say that 60 is, is certainly the 40, new 40, at least that's the way I'm looking at it. But, um, you know, uh, when I, when, when I think about it, I, I, how did those guys and, and the writers and artists who continue to work for mad continued to work for it. Um, how did you write for a 12 year old, you know? I mean, and I don't think that the writers and artists who worked for mad ever set out to write to 12 year olds i think they set out to write funny stuff and you know uh, certainly when you look at the artwork and i'm talking you know, again coming from an art perspective that's what i look at first the art is enormously sophisticated you know and and diverse whether you're going back to the 50s and, and those first comic books which are filled with you know some of the greatest ec artists who are some of the greatest cartoonists of, of all of comics history, whether you're, you're talking about John Severin or Will Elder or, or Jack Davis uh, and Wally Wood. I mean, Jack Davis as an illustrator was everywhere. I mean, he was the, he, you know, I don't know how long he, he continued to work for Mad, but Jack Davis as a cartoonist was just like ubiquitous. Everybody had a Jack Davis cartoon and you know, he worked for all of the major magazines and he was, he, when you look at his stuff and you look at all those guys, their pen and ink work, it's just unfriggin' believable how, how gifted and, and how good they were. Their skill level is just so high. And, um, you know, particularly in use of, of, you know, uh, ink and, and pen and ink and brush and ink, uh, all of them. But, you know, uh, again, when you go back and look at that stuff, it's amazing. That stuff is when I, I go to look at, you know, I can look at Mad now and look at the reprints, and I have a, a reprint, a Mad Archive book in front of me here, you know, with all of the stuff from the first couple of years, and, and it just blows my mind how good the illustrations are, as well as how funny the writing is. You know, Kurtzman was hilarious. But then you go on, you look at Mort Drucker's work, you know, I mean, there was no better caricaturist working in the in the late 20th century. No, nobody was better than Mort Drucker. And you just look at the quality and the level of work there. He's not drawing for 12 year olds, but that was who his audience was, you know? And, uh, it's astounding really because the work just, it hits that 12 year old mind and it, it's perfectly suited to that 12 year old mind. You know, everybody says that by the time you're 14, 15, you're on to other things, which was true for me. You know, Mad was a huge part of that, you know, 10, 11, 12 year period. But but by the time I was 14, 15, I was on to other things. And I think a lot of people are. Um, it, it's, it's just amazing to me, first of all, that you can go back and look and the quality of the artwork is just so stunning. But also that they could so well encapsulate what was going to appeal to each generation's 12-year-old, one succeeding generation after another. Uh, and th that continued more or less without flagging, you know, throughout its history. That's an interesting point you make about the sophistication and, and being able to recognize that 
I think that's another thing that shifts around that age where uh, you, as a kid, where aside from your, you know, your eyes opening to the, to the more cynical aspects of the world, there's also like the, uh, the more uh, kind of uh, the, the parts of the world that you can appreciate in a different way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in a positive way. And I'm starting to see that even with my own son where, and I mean, he has a unique experience where his house is full of books, just a lot of mad material and, and graphic novels and comics and original art on the walls. But he's starting to recognize, he's asking me, is this good art? And he's, <laughs> he's often right. Um, and he's starting, he's, he's reading the amulet books uh, by Kazu uh, Kabushi, and he's starting to recognize Kazu's art in other places. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is very cool. And I just think as you hit that age, you do start to recognize, uh, as you said, the sophistication of something that's done at a higher level of quality. I mean, that was the, the, the quality and care was always a big deal to, to us on the staff. Jack Davis specifically, uh, I'll mention that we had a piece of art of his, an original piece of art. And I'm sorry you never got a chance to see it in person, but a couple of people have blogged about it. I think if you were to check out Anton Emden or John Kovaleski, I think both of them or one of them uh, did. And it was this piece of art from, I believe, Mad Number 26. Sorry, uh-huh. don't get that exactly right. It was for a boxing uh, article. Uh-huh. And it was this gorgeous, oversized piece of art done on like kind of um, some illustration board that had uh, the exhibit. Like, tone type material um oh yeah yeah i can't remember yeah you used to be able to um, take a a wet brush to that yes it it was printed with zipatone like underneath this like um water would remove this um i don't know film that was over it or something and roy crane who did buzz sawyer and uh wash tubs who's a great 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 cartoonist um you know one of the great adventure strip uh, founders really. Um, Roy Crane was a master of that stuff. And, uh, I'm trying to remember what it was called now, but somebody will remind me, but yeah. So that 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 was, that was part of it. And it was just this giant, beautiful piece of art where he was using a brush to ink parts of it. And then he'd use the Zipatone to get other effects. And it's this amazing, it's a, it's a, it's a boxer delivering an uppercut to another boxer, but it's cropped in this interesting way where I don't think you, you might see the foreground, the, the puncher's head, the other head is being stretched off its neck off panel. And in the background there is the crowd. Um, and it's sort of like a mid, like a, a torso point of view of the boxers. And uh, it's just amazing. And it's just an incredible piece of art just in its composition, its drawing, like I said, the tools that he applied, the way he uh, got certain like the 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 gray tone effects in different ways and the wash effects and the and the ink the black ink but then what was especially um, just unbelievable is that the piece didn't print there is a i never got an answer as to exactly why a couple of people i think nick Meglin and jaffe suggested that harvey kurtzman who was still the editor at that point just saw something in it that needed uh needed to be changed and it, Jack Davis was famously fast, and I, I my guess, just a totally uneducated and partially educated guess, is that Jack just decided to redo it. Because when you see the finished version, there is a slight point of view, like a camera change. So uh, something about it, somebody wanted, wanted to change. Or maybe the art got briefly lost. I have no idea. All I know is that he then recreated the entire thing. 
And that type of care and attention to detail was, as I said before, something that was there the entire time. And I can only really speak just for the record of the New York experience. I, I freelanced a bit and I have some friends in the California staff, but I just wasn't in the room with them. But this is a big deal to us. Uh, Matt had a lot of hands-on oversight, editorial and art editorial oversight. And we were kind of constantly, I mean, not constantly, but we were working very closely with our freelancers on everything they did. And the, the sketches, they would, you know, artists specifically would send in sketches that uh, we would approve, make changes to. We always tried to be very considerate of them as professionals and their working experience and our relationships with them where we knew what they would be able to do and they knew what we wanted. But to be very honest with you, I think a big part of why, at least in my time, Mad was able to continue to, un to keep in the back of their mind that a 12-year-old is going to read this. I mean, our, our audience was split, especially after 60, 50 to 60 years. There are a lot of longtime readers. There were readers that loved it as a kid then came back in their 20s yeah. and 30s. And then there'd be the, the legacy uh, where they pass it on to their kids or just a kid finding it for the first time in a grocery store. So part of it was the staff and uh, that was able to help the freelancers. And that was uh, a focus, especially in, I, I started when I was 25, which, mm -hmm. you know, it's not 12, but still 25. And there were a number of people around that time, 2000, uh, the, around, around the year 2000 and in the ensuing years that were hired, they were around the same age and it was, something we would try to do. We had interns where we'd bring youth into the office. Mm -hmm. And you know, John Ficarra, who was the editor of MAD, co-editor with, uh, with Nick Meglin after 84, 85, and then Nick retired in the early 2000s. John continued until the end of New York. So, I mean, he was overseeing MAD for over 30 years. Wow. And that was a big focus of his, to make sure that he was, if he was going to do a magazine for kids, that he needed to keep bringing in people who are closer in age. And then another yeah, thought yeah. that he had was he knew that and rightful, he was right, that we would then start to have our own kids. And then, so it would kind of, we would, even as we got older, we mm -hmm. would be more aware of what the kids were interested in and, and uh, what was cool to them. And that could be everything from fads and celebrities and, and, and any other kind of cultural touchstones up into artistic styles. So, so talking about like, how, you know, someone like Jaffe, who is probably my favorite all around cartoonist of all time, mm -hmm. you know, he was somebody who very consciously has publicly said that he would turn to us to know about what was going on. He didn't want to have to keep up. I mean, sure. and so a lot of the fold ins, you know, the way not speaking out of school here, but we, it would be very collaborative as far as coming up with the subject matter and some of the concept. And Jaffe always figured out the illustration and wrote the thing himself. But and, he, and I'd say, you know, a huge major, uh, percentage of the ideas were him. And I'm talking, again, only in the later years. But, mm -hmm. you know, he would want that from us. He'd want that collaboration. So that was something we would try to offer to the freelancers that kind of, you know, so they didn't have to, especially as they continued in their careers and they were far more removed. They didn't have to focus on who was the, the hot musician or celebrity and especially as things have become more fractured and there's yeah, just yeah. so much going on. Um, artistically, on the other side, that was another thing. I mean, I, I've always been just so enamored with and aware of the changing 
landscape and illustration and cartooning and comics and everything. So I, I would try to uh, see, to keep an eye on what was going on out there as far as new artists and trends and styles. And as far as Mad's formula, mm-hmm. we were, this was a, it was always, uh, I always found there was a catch 22 here where there would be people that would say, look at a current issue of Mad. And, you know, color and ads notwithstanding, because that's a whole other argument. But they'd say, ah, it's not the same as it used to be. It's not as good. Mm-hmm. And then on the flip side, you'd hear, well, oh, they still have the fold-in and the movie pair, fibers <laughs> and spy. Some people, of course, that's what they wanted, and it gave them comfort. Some people say it's the same old thing. Yeah. yeah. So always trying to find that middle ground. And that was, we, it's around the time that I started, there was this push internally editorially to not be so deferential to ourselves and what mad had been uh-huh. and if sergio argonis is going to give you four pages you're going to always take those pages i mean he's yeah he's sergio mm-hmm. so yeah. that was you know it was never an idea it wasn't that it wasn't like oh let's throw the baby out of the bathwater it was you know okay let's see what we can integrate as far as bringing in new ideas and some of the things off the top of my head are we did um we had a we ran a feature for a long time called Planet Ted, which was a teenager's blog or like a preteen's blog. It was written by Tim Carvel, who uh, at the time was a Daily Show writer, became the the uh, the showrunner, executive producer, and then has gone on to lead John Oliver's show. And he has such a sharp, fun voice, and he was able to tap into the twelve-year-old. I mean, he talks about how a lot of it, those stories were his own, <coughs> but. That was the type of thing that had never appeared in Mad, not with that type of regularity. It's very text-heavy. Mad certainly had text-heavy pieces, but it was really a parody slash homage to that type of blog that was happening at the time. It was like, um, I don't remember the, <laughs> I based the design off of, uh, I can't think of, Live Journal. Uh-huh. Oh, it's yeah. Like, yeah. Really, it was tapping into the live drill audience sure. and trying to do something to appeal to them at the same time. Like the kid, nothing ever went right for him. It was that type of story. He was a sweet kid. Uh, he wasn't a jerk, but he was just things weren't going his way. So it was like it was an attempt, not an attempt. I, I, it was successful. We had a couple of books come out, uh, like collections, hardcover collections with new material to, um, you know, just to kind of stay in touch with the type of 12 year olds. Literally, that we were, because that's about how old Tad was, that we were, uh, that were Hope was reading the magazine at the time. We also introduced uh, a new front section of the magazine called the Fundalini Pages, which were kind of quick hits about like late breaking news or something going on that maybe didn't deserve a full mad two page article, like a big piece, but we still wanted to say something about it. Mm-hmm. Also, those were meant to be. And and also the, the sorry the the strip club section which were all just comic strips just a I love that yeah two thank you the two to four page section in the middle of the magazine the purpose of both of these was to introduce new people into the magazine uh, into to the readers and that could either be you know as an illustrator or a writer or a writer artist and just also have an opportunity to bring in new voices that that fit. Um, yeah. You know, and and give them a place where they because there was never really a comic strip section in that. You might do, you know, right. Don Martin had his full pagers, but that was Don Martin. He needed it. 
He needed yeah. space to draw. His stuff worked. It, 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 you know, you yeah. want, we want, everyone wanted that. Yeah. Uh, and you know, some this gave us opportunity to kind of tell smaller little stories and small, oh. you know, little quieter gags. So that was something that we always were trying to do. Always trying to think, what could we do differently in this issue or a new feature going forward, or you know, how can we continue to help Matt evolve? Well, one of the things that uh, I mean, a couple things come to mind while you're speaking there one i love the strip club uh section and and uh, all right i'm going to confess i would go to the supermarket and while my my wife might be shopping for you know um i don't know one thing or another that i wasn't really particularly involved in at the moment i would go sneak a peek at mad magazine and by that time you know money was not as easy uh, as it was when i was 12 years old and it was it, i usually wouldn't buy it but i'd flip through and read the strip club stuff Jeff, you didn't have a mad subscription. I, I'm sorry, man. I this, did. All right. This, this, yeah, this interview's over. I'm out of here. <laughs> so, uh, sorry, man. But I did enjoy the strip club section. And uh, one of the guys who contributed on a regular basis to that, a guy by the name of Lance Hansen, did a strip called Mr. Morals for you guys. And uh, I used to read that because he did some work for a magazine that I published, not a magazine, a newspaper paper I published back in 2010 called Pood. So, uh, which was a kind of, um, it was a reinvigoration, if you will, or reimagining of comic strips, one page comic strips. And Lance did some work for that. And so I'd known Lance for a while. So that drew me to the strip club thing. And I just loved going through there. One, what I loved about it was the strips were colorful, they were short and they were new. And so you, and what Matt offered at that point was beginning to offer was a venue for new cartoonists that was going to pay, you know, and, yeah. and there are fewer and fewer outlets. And this is one of the things that's upsetting about the closing of Mad's doors in at least this regard. And, um, as, as well as, you know, other venues for cartoonists, um, you know, years ago, uh, Playboy, which used to be one of the greatest resources for, uh, cartoonists, you know, they supported cartoonists for many years, um, and other magazines, you know, whether you're talking about the Saturday evening post or Collier's, that whole tradition of the magazine, uh, and the cartoon with the magazine. I mean, how many of them are, are left that actually offer, you know, uh, a cartoonist, uh, a decent amount of pay for, for their work. And there are very, very few. And so mad was, you know, through the strip club and the other uh, formats that you're talking about offering new voices, uh, an opportunity to establish themselves, to be seen by a large audience, an large, uh, an audience that's going to be larger than, you know, they might usually get with an Instagram post or a, a Facebook post or something. And, um, and offer them, you know, remuneration for it too. You know, they got paid. Yay. You know, how often does that happen to a cartoonist? And, and so it's really, it's problematic. It's sad. And, and it's more than sad. It's kind of a desperate, I don't know, is it a desperate situation now for, a, for, for cartoonists trying to f make a living wage? I, I think it's pretty difficult and, uh, for, for a lot of them. And, uh, you know, without, venues like mad and uh and you know other magazines that pay um you know how are they going to continue to support themselves and it's it's really a, a serious issue because magazines for for you know as long as comics have been popular have been the the source for a living for most of them and uh and those venues are drying up as are the editorial 
you know, cartooning opportunities. But that, okay, that's a tangent. That 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 leads off into other things. Actually, I actually, I think it's worth talking about. I mean, it's very upsetting. And, you know, something that can't be lost in this conversation going on about mad ending new content. And I, I don't want to put, I you know, there there's the story out there uh, that as far as everything I know is correct, that that is what's happening, that MAD on a regular basis will be any new content and there will be opportunities, um, or there, there there might be some new material published in different forms. But you know, for a lot of people, MAD has the last bunch of years come out every two months. But there are a lot of freelancers who are in every issue. I mean, there was still a, a usual gang of idiots. Um, yeah. Some people would be here and there, but Partially, it was our desire to continue that concept, the usual gang of idiots, that there were certain people you knew were going to be in every issue. Also, and, we, loved th- we loved their work. Yeah. Uh, we wanted them in every issue. Also, yeah. you know, they were our friends, and we wanted to help them out as financially. And um, and and uh, that's going to be a big hit. Like, there are really people, the real people <laughs> that are going to be adversely affected here. Oh, man. Uh, and so it's a it's a bummer. And then on top of it, as you say, there aren't there aren't as many places as there used to be. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we there was a point where we had some trouble, not trouble, but it wasn't an automatic thing that we'd gain new talent. Um, if we if we went after somebody, some people mad uh, had an all rights purchase scenario. Which uh, if we if you worked for us, uh Total all rights re- were retained by EC publications. And a lot, some people, justifiably and assembly, did not want to do that. Sure. But there was a point where it's just we, Sam Viviani used to say, Matt is uh, not the only game in town anymore. And there were just other places that you could, a lot of other magazines and newspapers and, and, and areas where you could ply your trade. Mm-hmm. But uh, I know that I'm seeing more art, editorial art on the web, but my understanding is just, the pay is not the same and it's not consistent. And that was a big part of mad for, uh, the people that worked for us for a long time where, you know, you could count on it. It was the, yeah. the, the, the rent we we pay the, the rent or the mortgage as we would say. Well, it was like a regular job, you know, it was like, it was like you had something to count on as a cartoonist. And, you know, I mean, there, there's this idea, you know, that goes along. Well, if you're an artist, you know, you, you live hand to mouth and that's just something you accept. And the reality of it is that's not true at all. You know, the reality of it is, is we all have to get along. And at a certain point in your life, you want some sense, you know, of, of stability somewhere. And so that you can create cartoons because without stability, you can't think, you know, with, Without food on the table, you can't think, you can't create, you can't imagine. Without a place to sleep, you know, uh, a place to count on uh, to be your own the next day, it's hard to draw, you know, and and especially if you're working old school. Um, But then again, you have to have the money to buy the tools if you're going to be working digitally. And so... You know, it, it MAD and other, you know, similar publications, you know, throughout the late 20th century and even now into the early 21st century, they offered this, you know, this place, you know, this stability, uh, whether you built a freelance career out of many publications or you focused on, on one or two, you know, and I think of somebody like Mort Drucker. Uh, whose work is, uh, you know, we talked about, is filled with detail, took a, must have taken, you know, a great deal of concentration. I don't know how fast he was. It doesn't really pertain. But that work was extremely uh, sophisticated and very, very, you know, detailed. And uh, work like that, if you're going to do work like that, you better be getting a decent amount of pay for it, you know. If you're not going to get the rights to it, 
then, and, and I'm assuming, you know, that he worked for mad for many, many years that the pay was decent for Mort Drucker, you know, but then you're not going to make that kind of money just posting your stuff on Instagram, whether you got Patreon, you know, followers or not, I think it's going to be very difficult for most people. You know, I mean, there are people who are very savvy with Patreon and whatnot and are doing well with it, but, uh, you know, it takes time to build up that audience and a certain amount of risk involved. And, uh, you know, so somebody who's working on the level of, you know, Drucker is, um, you know, you've got to, to do that work, you've probably, there's got to be pay that's commensurate with the quality of that work, you know, and Matt offered that. And, and many other publications offered that too, even for the, you know, fly by night, you know, uh, one-off, you know, cartoon, you might sell to the New Yorker, you might sell to whatever publication was going at the time. You know, if you did enough of those, you were going to be able to put together a living. And, uh, and a lot of times, you know, one hand washed the other, the, a lot of editors knew each other. They, you know, they passed around cartoonist names and, you know, you need somebody who's fast. You, here's a guy, you know, and, uh, all of that's kind of gone. So it's kind of the wild west out there in, in terms of trying to, you know, make a living that is something that's not only tangible, but is dependable. And, and without, you know, venues like Matt, it's, it's increasingly difficult and, uh, and difficult to build an audience, you know, to do that. I mean, some people do it and have done it very, very well. It's not, not to say that it can't be done. It's, it's, you know, there are people I see on Instagram every day who have, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of followers and, you know, they have, a, a, a you know, you talk about say something like the awkward Yeti, which, um, has a, a zillion followers and has established itself as a brand, you know, and he's doing great with that. Uh, and there are others that, while maybe have a lot of followers, maybe haven't capitalized on, on, uh, some of the things that that strip has, but you know, it's, it's, uh, I think it's pretty difficult and, uh, it's a, it's a tough time for cartoonists to see things like that drying up and editorial jobs drying up. And, you know, the times isn't going to publish editorial cartoons anymore and, and et cetera. And we all get them in our Instagram feed for free and we don't have to pay for anything for them. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that we've entered into uh, this period of, of great accessibility and the potentiality of reaching a lot of people, all of that's there. And that's unbelievably, that's tremendous, right? People who couldn't get to an audience before can do it now. But at the same time, um, it, it doesn't necessarily, you know, result in any kind of uh, living you know, of, of any kind. And, uh, it doesn't necessarily result in, in, uh, a following or in, in monetary gain in any way. And I think that's, that's a difficulty we find ourselves in. We as an audience, and I'm, again, I'm part of the audience, right? It's really easy just to take for granted all of the stuff that comes to you every day. I don't have to subscribe to my Instagram. I just get tons of comics on my Instagram that I don't have to pay a dime for. Right. And, you know, there they are. And I read them and I go on to the, I laugh and I go on to the next one and I don't have to pay for any of that. And it's right there. Right. And, uh, you know, especially as, you know, we get older and set in our ways and whatnot, we're less likely to reach out and, and pay for stuff like that. But, you know, and I'm, I think everybody's grateful for those who do, but, you know, we have this instant accessibility that makes it, um, you know, very much uh, an environment in which we take for granted 
um, the the manufacture, the creation of popular cultural pop, popular culture artifacts, uh, media, um, you know, music, comics, writing, you name it, we get it all for free. And uh, and you know, the generation coming up behind us and, and well behind me, multiple generations, they're so used to to getting it. I mean, they laugh at us, you know, old folks for, you know streaming on for pay sites you know uh, netflix and and hulu and whatnot they get their stuff in all kinds of little funny places on on the internet that they found and uh, you know it, it's it, increasingly it's an issue you know uh i think because if you're going to get quality stuff you've got to support the people who are creating the stuff and we haven't found a way really to do that with any equanimity Okay, with that, we will call it a day for part one of my discussion with Ryan Flanders about Mad Magazine, its history, uh, its demise, and uh, the issues surrounding it. And uh, there's lots to talk about yet to come. Tomorrow's episode is equal in length to this episode, so uh, tomorrow or it'll be out later today. I'm not sure which. In the meantime, uh, head on over to Grogan Jeff at Instagram. Uh, Check out my new work. I'd really appreciate it if you did. I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, I know I'm beating the drum, but if I don't do it, who will? So uh, having said that, I will see you very shortly. Thanks for listening.